KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Katrina Vandenhuvel, editor and publisher of The Nation on Ukraine, Putin, and Russia, and Jeet here on the Canadian trucker strike and its implications for the United States. First up today, our political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Well, we want to talk about the State of the Union last night, Biden's speech. Uh, Before Biden's speech, you wrote a piece for the Prospect suggesting that he should link the defense of democracy in Ukraine to the defense of democracy at home. Ukraine, you wrote, provides a nice segue into an attack on the Republican moves to limit the electorate. I don't think he took your advice. No, uh, that's strange because, you know, we talk all the time, Joe and I. (laughs) Ah. Uh, uh, He did uh, in the course of sort of making a case for uh, a, a lot of his domestic agenda. He did certainly mention uh, the importance of voting rights, but that was kind of a quick hit, and he certainly did not link it to, um, you know, a concern for democracy at home as well as democracy abroad. And, you know, I think there was clear open field running room, as it were, for him to do that, uh, you know, and particularly to reference, he didn't have to use names, but to reference the fact that uh, too many Americans had uh, really kind of supported Putin before the attack uh, precisely because they liked his uh, autocratic ways. And, uh, you know, Biden had a a preset frame for dealing with this. He'd been talking about this being a moment in which uh, democracy and autocracy were really sort of the two uh, competing systems in the world. He was talking about that uh, w- during his presidential campaign. Uh, so, you know, there was, I think, uh, an opening there, which he uh, he did not take. And why do you think he did not mention Republican attacks on democracy? Well, part of what he was trying to do last night was to come across as bipartisan national leader Joe Biden not the divisive figure whom the Republicans continually attack. In fact, Republicans have, you know, created this image of Joe Biden that bears scant, if any, resemblance to the real Joe Biden. The real Joe Biden certainly hasn't engaged in some of the culture war issues that Republicans try to make hay about. Uh, He very clearly said last night he was not a defund the police guy, quite the contrary. Uh, And his emphasis has been chiefly on, you know, bolstering the domestic economy, domestic manufacturing, uh, the domestic social contract, uh, all of which is, is, is pretty popular. And he tried to get back to that last night, in addition to being the national leader who has essentially led the international coalition against Putin over the last week. So... Uh, he, uh, you know, there were a lot of shots at Republicans that he did not take. So he was uh, especially effective on some of the massively popular parts of his agenda. His 
his uh, section on cutting the price of insulin for that adorable little kid sitting up in the gallery was pretty irresistible. He did mention getting Medicare to bargain drug prices down. He talked about funding affordable childcare and universal pre-K. Talked a little bit about spending funds to mitigate the climate crisis. Um, and you, if you didn't know what was go going on, you think, gee, these are good ideas. I hope, I hope they pass these. <laughs> Is there any chance that any of these will pass? Well, he basically went through the whole uh, list of the components of the uh, now defunct Build Back Better bill. Uh, you know, I suppose there is a possibility that the specific elements you cited still might pass muster uh, with uh, Mansion and Cinema, we 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 don't know. Uh, there's no reason to assume that they will. But unlike other components of Build Back Better, like the uh, uh, child uh, tax cut, uh, uh, you know, uh, making uh, tax rebates to families with children, um, uh, he didn't really single out what the elements that people thought might still be possible from the whole litany of the very good components of Build Back Better, which are dead as doornails. That could be because he thinks the whole thing is dead as doornails from whatever signals he has gotten from uh, Joe Manchin. One thing that's pretty clear is that one of the things that weakened Biden was that he was seen for quite a number of months as negotiating with Manchin without getting anything for it. And so I don't think he wants to be sort of seen doing that again. I mean, uh, if, if they bring something to the Hill, I think um, they will have a prearranged deal or they will not bring it to the Hill. And then he ended up with this uh, project of four different areas in which he proposes to work with Republicans and invites them to join him. Uh, curing cancer. How could the Republicans be against curing cancer? But have you did you see any signs uh, that the Republicans want to work with Biden, even on curing cancer? Uh, no, no, they, they will, uh, you know, be part of, uh, you know, the national response to Putin, although they insist on uh, making the charge that, you know, it was Biden's weakness that led Putin to attack. Certainly, they're not making uh, an acknowledgement of the fact that Trump's support for Putin might have been a factor as well. Um, but uh, no, I mean, uh, their sole agenda is to uh, weaken Biden and to link him and the Democrats to this divisive culture war issues in which um, actually most of the Democrats are not participants. So uh, I don't see much support even for uh, Biden v. Cancer. Uh, I don't see any <laughs> amicus briefs coming from the Republicans. I, I tried to watch a little bit of the Republican reply from Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. She's a terrible speaker, at least on television, so it was very hard to watch her. But uh, she certainly didn't show any interest in bipartisanship. No, no, not at all. Uh, I mean, you know, really, uh, on things like the Supreme Court uh, nomination of, of uh, Katanji uh, Brown-Jackson, I think maybe because she's voted for every Supreme Court nominee since she became a senator, maybe they can get Susan Collins. Uh, you know, that's 
that may be about it. Uh, the, the MSNBC, MSNBC said they had 52. Well, that could be. I mean, they could get Mitt Romney. They could get Lisa Murkowski. Who knows? Uh, you know, and Collins and Murkowski are in the position of having supported the Trump nominees who seem to be uh, uh, about to issue a ruling striking down uh, most, if not all, of Roe v. Wade, uh, which Collins and Murkowski support. So maybe they will both come over on uh, on this one. Well, you brought up uh, Republican support for Putin, especially Trump's. So let's talk about that a little more. Um, you know, Biden pointed out, Biden opened with a tribute to Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, who really is a heroic figure uh, in the world uh, this week, courageous, eloquent, inspiring. But uh, in the prospect, you take a trip down memory lane to recall how the Republicans have tried to weaken and undermine him for several years. I mean, everybody knows now that Trump called Putin a genius for his move into Ukraine last week, but it wasn't just Trump. For example, there was uh, Fox News stars Laura Ingram and, and Tucker Carlson. Yes, uh, and uh, Ryan Cooper uh, wrote a, a very good piece, which is on the Prospect uh, website today uh, about this. Yes, well, of course, Tucker Carlson has been part of Putin's uh, cheering circle. Uh, two things which under, underline, I think, a lot of the right support for Putin. One, he's seen as really tough, you know, uh, and it, it may be precisely the autocratic style and substance of government that he runs that is appealing to them with its uh, brutalization and occasional poisoning of political opponents. Secondly, uh, and this dates back to uh, Pat Buchanan writing maybe 15 years ago, Buchanan, who was sort of the, uh, the grandfather of the Republican culture war strategy, uh, which he invoked against, uh, you know, even uh, George H.W. Bush when running in the Republican primary against him as far back as 1992, Buchanan wrote that, you know, we need to reevaluate Russia under Putin. This is like 15 years ago essentially because he hates homosexuals as, as much as we on the right do. And, uh, uh, you know, he's become sort of a, a hero to the American right um, as, as kind of a symbol of uh, old line, uh, traditional morality slash bigotry, uh, you know. And so both, both for his, you know, supposedly manly demeanor in leading and his... Uh, what the right calls anti-woke politics, which really boils down to racist, homophobic yes. uh, politics. Uh, he's been uh, acclaimed by the right, by Fox News primetime hosts and former President Trump. Yeah, the let me just uh, let me just quote from the prospect that reminded us about Laura Ingram on Fox just the week before the invasion. Uh, she called the Ukrainian President Zelensky really pathetic uh, and said that the Ukrainian ambassador to the, U the UN looked like a defeated man. 
She said this kind of happily, I have to say. And, and Tucker Carlson called Ukraine a pure client state of the U.S. State Department and then had this remarkable sentence. I'm sure you remember him. Uh, remember, uh, has Putin ever called me a racist? Has he threatened to get me fired for disagreeing with him? Has he shipped every middle class job in my town to Russia? I mean, the point there is, you know, uh, what has Putin ever done to me? I don't mind Putin. One might also add that where Tucker Carlson lives, there are no middle class jobs. There are only upper class, uh, <laughs> upper class jobs. So we've been talking uh, about the, the beginnings of Republican interest in, in Putin, going back 15 years to Pat Buchanan. And then we've been talking about the events of the last week. But of course, there's a period in the middle where, where people sort of have forgotten. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people remember that Trump was impeached for uh, trying to get Zelensky to come up with dirt on, on Hunter Biden. Um, and, uh, well, and and for conditioning American aid to Ukraine on Zelensky coming up with uh, dirt, whether real or imagined, on Hunter Biden. Yeah, Trump froze military assistance to Ukraine that Congress had already voted because they could see the storm clouds gathering o over Ukraine. Uh, Trump also refused the White House meeting with Zelensky in 2019, which would have sent uh uh, uh, international message that the U.S. was going to side with Ukraine in any coming uh, con confrontation with Russia. Um, and uh, there was a, a piece in the uh, Washington Post by Greg Sargent that reminded us that Trump turned Ukraine policy over to Rudy Giuliani, his personal lawyer, rather than the State Department. Um, and it was, Giuliani, of course, was the one who was supposed to organize this case against Hunter Biden. Um, really uh, shocking uh, uh, move. Uh, and then I still remember, you probably remember too, there was a strange change in the Republican platform back in 2016. Remember this? Paul Manafort, who had worked in Ukraine with a pro-Russian party, was also the head of Trump's campaign. Uh, and they pressured the party to change its platform to weaken its support for U.S. aid to Ukraine. This is in 2016, before Trump is even president. He's already working for Putin to weaken Ukraine. That's a long time ago. Yes. Well, you know, the, the only real ism in which Donald Trump believes is narcissism. <laughs> and by that, by that standard, you know, Putin is a guy who helped Trump win election in 2016. Uh, and Zelensky is a guy who refused to deliver the probably non-existent goods on Hunter Biden, which would have bolstered Trump's political chances uh, in 2020, as Trump saw it. So, I mean, you know, in a certain sense, the most remarkable political development in the U.S. of our time has been the Republican Party's embrace of the narcissistic drives of Donald Trump, which, among other things, maybe pro most prominently, uh, makes it impossible for him to acknowledge he could have actually lost a fair election. So the election had to be rigged. So this is a Trump personality disorder, which has become the uh, new uh, bedrock of Republican politics. Uh, taking this personality disorder 
as, uh, you know, the Republican Party's fundamental principle. Very odd situation. I'm shaking my head. Um, Let's shift the focus here uh, and and talk about elections. Um, Yesterday was the first of the midterm primaries of this season. Texas has the first primaries. And this is a state which, as we have often said, demographically should be a lot more like California, a very blue state. And eventually, we hope someday Texas will be a blue state, but not yet, um, not under the current uh, uh, redistricting uh, rules. But uh, progressive. so the Democratic seats were consolidated, but they were consolidated in a way that pitted uh, very progressive challengers against incumbents, or in some cases competing with for open seats with mainstream uh, people. Let's talk about the results of the Democratic primaries, which it, it looked like a triumph for uh, uh, progressives. Uh, starting in Austin, tell us about Austin. Well, in Austin, a very progressive uh, Austin City Councilman, uh, uh, Greg Cesar, I think. Uh, uh, overwhelmingly won the primary. He had 60% of the vote against uh, three uh, opponents on, you know, a really uh, progressive record on the city council, which included uh, reducing funds for the police, not where, uh, you know, some Democrats uh, across the board have been going. Uh, And he had the support of really the unified left with the exception of DSA because he, uh, uh, didn't satisfy them on supporting uh, BDS in uh, uh, Israel, Palestine, which it was hardly an issue, I think, very prominent on uh, Austin voters' minds. Um, so uh, he won handily. And in a rematch along the Rio Grande, uh, the progressive uh, Jessica Cisneros and Henry Cuellar polled very close to each other and will be running off, uh, since neither uh, got 50% of the vote, uh, in uh, upcoming elect- uh, runoff election. Now, <clears throat> the, the last time I checked, uh, this is um, Wednesday afternoon, it was a couple of hours ago, Cuellar was something like 800 votes ahead. Um, that doesn't seem good, but... No, it doesn't seem good. And particularly since there was a third candidate who was also running as a progressive. And if her votes were added mm-hmm. to those of Jessica Cisneros, uh, Cisneros would have uh, would have won last night. Um, well, pu- what puzzles me about this race is that uh, is that Henry Cuellar, who is what a nine term incumbent, uh, really despa- a kind of a loner in the party. He's the only Democrat in the House to vote against making Roe v. Wade into into law. Um, and, and he's the only Democrat to have voted against the PRO Act, which may, would make it easier for uh, workers to join unions. And he has one other distinction. The FBI raided his house shortly before the, the uh, primary election. You would think that alone would be a good enough reason uh, for him to be massively defeated. And all the party support that he's had in the past, or virtually all of it, withdrew from backing him with the exception of, of the, uh, what is it, the Latino uh, caucus, the Hispanic caucus, it's called, the Hispanic caucus, which backs all incumbents no matter what. Um, how come he did okay? In the, he, I mean, he came out ahead, it looks like. Well, this is, uh, sad to say, a rightward moving district. And, and in some sense, Henry Cuellar's politics, this is a district inhabited by 
it's not 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 by uh, immigrants, not by Mexican immigrants or anything. These are people who have lived there for a very long time, uh, culturally uh, very conservative. He, he's sort of equivalent in Mexico to an, an old guard candidate from the PRI, the long-term governing uh, party which subsisted on corruption and uh, deference to elites. And, uh, you know, that's pretty much, there's a, some tradition of support for that in that district. And that district um, has seen uh, major shifts in party registration moving over towards the Republicans. So, uh, you know, actually, it might be difficult for either Cisneros or Cuellar uh, to win the November election. Uh, but uh, the sort of conservative tilt of that district is up to now one of the things that Cuellar has been counting upon. Cuellar is more likely to be defeated there, it seems to me, than, than the uh, progressive candidate because he's get, there's video of the FBI raiding his house. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's politically toxic by any standard. Uh, so that's one more reason why, uh, you know, all Democrats and all progressives, but even just all Democrats who aren't progressives, should be supporting Cisneros. You know, we did a segment on this podcast with with some with a authority on voting statistics who said who had looked very closely at at the vote for Trump in that district, which people say is a bellwether for uh, Latinos shifting to the Republicans. And what he had found was that Biden, in fact, got more votes there in 2020 than than Hillary had in 2016. But Trump got a lot more votes in 2020 than he had gotten in 2016. So basically 2020, there was just a huge mobilization on both sides. And it's so this is a a turnout uh, uh, question. Partly, this is also really a culturally conservative constituency. And uh, the Republican emphasis on culture wars uh, has has worked very well on there. Meanwhile, this is not a district where progressive democratic economic policies have really had a great impact. It's also the case that, you know, a lot of the people in this district work for the border patrol. That's what the district is, the Texas border. And that would tend to align people whose paycheck <laughs> is dependent upon that more in a Trumpian direction. Well, one last thing that we want to talk about just for a minute here, the L.A. mayor's race. There's a new development, billionaire developer Rick Caruso in his challenge to Representative Karen Bass, former community organizer. Caruso has endorsed the recall of our new progressive D.A. George Gascon. So this is really going to be uh, basically Caruso is going all the way uh, towards um, the law and order kind of campaign that we associate more with Nixon than we do with uh, Los Angeles Democrats. Well, I, that's true. But I think the model is closer to Richard Reardon running for mayor as a Republican businessman after the 1992 uh, uprising. Uh, and his slogan was tough enough to turn L.A. around. Uh, you know, I mean, that pretty much uh, is the de facto uh, slogan of, of Caruso. Look, I can solve rising crime. I can solve homelessness. God knows how in either case. Uh, but that's clearly how he's going to run. But L.A. politically and demographically has changed radically and moved substantially to the left since, uh, you know, since Reardon was elected. On the other hand, 
Um, he's right that there's discontent with uh, over some of the issues that Reardon was able to mobilize a majority for as well. So, you know, it augurs to be a, a, a really significant race between him and Karen Bass. One more thing about the State of the Union. Uh, Biden was heckled by Representative Lauren Boebert of Colorado. Biden was saying, quote, our troops in Iraq and Afghanistan faced many dangers. When they came home, many of the world's fittest and best trained warriors were never the same. Headaches, numbness, dizziness, a cancer that would put them in a flag-draped coffin. And at that point, Lauren Boebert shouted, 13 of them. And then Biden continued, one of those, one of those soldiers was my son, Major Bo Biden. My question for you is, what's the matter with Lauren Boebert? Well, I mean, she and Gosar and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene are the truest expressions of Trumpian demagogy and idiocy. And uh, if the Republican affection for Putin was that he wasn't confined by effete manners, God knows Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene and the Yutzes around them feel that they are similarly liberated they're also, you know, I think really an embarrassment to the bulk of the Republican caucus, but politics of Republicanism clearly encompasses them. And it's not like Kevin McCarthy has uh, felt uh, free to really repudiate them. It's the first time the term yutzes has been used on air. And for that, we thank Harold Meyerson. Read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks as always. And keep tuning in because I will use yutzes increasingly. <laughs> It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the biggest assault on a European state since World War II. For comment and analysis, we turn to Katrina Vanden Heuvel. Of course, she's publisher and editorial director of The Nation, and she writes a weekly column for The Washington Post. She's studied and written about Russia for a couple of decades now. We see her often on ABC, MSNBC, CNN, PBS, and Democracy Now!, Katrina, welcome back. Thank you, John. Very good to be with you. Well, we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon. It's six days after the invasion. At this hour, the Russian attack on Kiev seems imminent, but we're not going to comment on the battlefield events of the last few hours or days. Our topic is the bigger picture, what's going on and where it's going and I'm especially interested in the response inside Russia. In, in 2014, when Putin invaded and then annexed Crimea, this was a very popular thing uh, in Russia. How does the reaction there this past week compare? It's a very good question, John. The Crimean annexation was popular, cannot be denied, in Russia. Putin got a boost. The polls, and there are some independent polls, showed support from the Russian people. But this is very different. We've been running a chronicle of resistance inside, from inside Russia. It's not popular because, like so many countries these days, John, Russia's consumed with COVID. The economic landscape is not good. 
And people are, you know, don't have on their minds this kind of patriotic invasion. But you have not only leading independent newspapers protesting, issuing statements, you've had 100 elected officials from around the country. You've had major celebrities who are, inve- who are invested in the system, but protesting. People are run, doing a run on the banks. So some Russians have seen four economic implosions in their life. And I, I, I think the demonization of Russia as a people is disturbing Russians very much. I will say in the last few days, and I was talking to a Russian journalist today, my friend Nadia Chikina, the Duma, the parliament, is trying to pass legislation to make it illegal and uh, finable up to 15 million rubles to use the word war oh. in reporting. Special operations, of quotes, is the word. In addition, there are attempts to shut down media institutions. The Human Rights Group Memorial was liquidated the other day. As we've seen, John, Russians standing in support, but in times of increasing Cold War, the space for independence is narrowed. Just a few hours ago, the editor of Novaya Gazeta, Dmitry Muratov, who won the Nobel Peace Prize at the end of December, uh, issued an open appeal with the 2017 winner, Beatrice Finn, of ICANN, the abolition group, they issued a statement together calling on um, for the demilitarization and the nuclear, you know, the abolition of nuclear weapons. So that space is there. But last thing I'll say is many Russians are standing with Ukrainians. Inter, there's intermarriage, there's their relationships, and there's concern in Russia about the refugees, which is a terrible human cost, John. I think we're seeing 500,000. There's very grave concern about the civilian casualties. And as in Afghanistan, when the body bags come back from Ukraine to Russia, there could be increasing opposition. Well, Putin announced on Sunday that nuclear weapons there were being, quote, transferred to, quote, a special mode of combat duty, close quote. That sounds scary. What does it mean? Well, what it means, John, is when you have nuclear weapons involved in any discussion, the risks of uh, blunder, miscommunication, miscalculation are enormous. Each country has approximately 1,500 strategic weapons. And there, you know, there's been miscalculation in these last years underreported. Nuclear submarines, bomber planes off of the Russian border, U.S.-Russian planes nearly averting a collision. So I think anything that can be done to diffuse this tension, uh, it's not fully clear what uh, Putin meant, but it was a threat. He used an arcane term, but um, there is a real danger. And in that context, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, when he went to the Munich Security Conference a couple of weeks ago before all of this broke, did take talk about suspending the Budapest Memorandum of 1994, which moved nukes out of Ukraine. It was a kind of international deal. And he said, we may, you know, abol- we may renege on that agreement and bring in nukes. So there's, there, you know, it's so dangerous. It is, and I think people don't fully understand there's been such silence on nukes, not with us and, uh, you know, but after the end of the Soviet Union, after the end, the first Cold War, the concern about nukes, you don't have a million people in Central Park as you did on June 2nd. One thing that this should lead to is a reconstitution of four nuclear weapons treaties, which have been torn apart, shredded in the last, ABM in 2002, the INF, 
which led million people to Central Park, the conventional forces and the open skies, all the scaffolding of arms control has been ripped and shredded. And I think that's important to look at. One big result of the sanctions is that Russia is being cut off from Europe, which pushes Russia closer to China. What do you see as the longer-term effects of that for Russia and for the world? Very good question. I will say the news today appears to be that Ukraine has applied to the European Union, which, you know, is that precipitated this crisis in 2013-14 to join the European Union. Russia had on offer the European Association. There could have been a tripartite agreement with Ukraine and Bridge. There's no question that Russia will turn east. In these last years, John, what's happened inside Russia is the undercutting, indeed, sabotage of Western-leaning elites. Those who wanted a better relationship with the West have had the rugs pulled out from under them. China has bought masses of wheat in the last week. Uh, It did abstain at the Security Council at the United Nations, which is interesting. I think there will be a very transactional relationship. They're not going to be dear friends. And, you know, NATO seems intent on making that happen. So, yeah, let's talk a little more about NATO. We've often talked on on this show and in the Nation magazine about how NATO encirclement of Russia starting in the 80s was a provocative move that was totally unjustified and unnecessary. NATO is not going to invade Russia. Russia is not going to invade Poland or Lithuania. So we don't need U.S. and NATO troops uh, there. But isn't the effect of Putin's invasion of Ukraine to strengthen NATO, to make NATO more powerful, more important, and particularly this German move to greatly expand its military, really for the first time since the 1950s, adding more than $100 billion to their military budget. This has got to seem ominous to ordinary Russians, especially the older ones who who have some historical sense. 27 million perished in World War II, Germany on the borders. It's going to empower NATO, John, but it's going to empower the ascendant forces of militarism and, and the hawks, so to speak, across the board. It's a tragedy because... In 1997, the nation did a special issue, the case against NATO expansion. That's not important. What's important is there is a real view that Gorbachev in 1990 was betrayed by George H.W., James Baker, the United States. He was told with German reunification, NATO would not move one inch east. And there was a real debate at that time. It has done what people feared it would, which is certainly since 2008, when NATO moved to the borders of Russia, and Ukraine and Georgia became active invitees. Uh, it, it has, it's a military alliance, John. It was formed to counter the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact in 1949. It's not a coffee clash. <laughs> so I fear it, it does empower uh, the forces of kind of a bipartisan militarism around the world. And China and Russia are in our national security review, John, actually written document issued by the administration, that counterinsurgency is no longer the real threat. It's Russia and China. What should the United States do now? What should our goal be? Our goal should be first a ceasefire for human, the cost of the, you know, the human tragedy. And, you know, it's no question that Russia breached international law, broke international law, 
and is uh, doing something, by the way, John, that people who've studied Russia for many more years than I have are really shocked by. I mean, and so that's different. Uh, a ceasefire, beginning of nuclear negotiations. At the moment, it's uh, reported that nuclear negotiations, strategic communications are suspended. I, I think, you know, some dialogue, even with condemnation, but some dialogue is needed. And then what's needed, John, I think, is to think anew about a security architecture, which, by the way, Gorbachev spoke of many years ago, Macron at his best. And I've never been a big fan of Macron, except for his marital situation. I didn't say that. (laughs) Um, But he was talking about a new security architecture. It's going to take time. We are now frozen, almost like one of these frozen conflicts, the world order. But there has to be new thinking, because think of the challenges of the 21st century. We entered thinking... COVID, pandemics, climate crisis, global economic instability. I mean, these are issues that are, we thought, challenges of our time. And we're back in a way to an old order, which in some ways Russia, Putin has inflicted on the world, but we would be wise not to accede to that and find a a different way forward. But I, I, I also hope I have to say that we've just exited Afghanistan that war, according to the Cost of War Project, was 5.6 trillion, and the quote international community can't find five billion for that humanitarian catastrophe. May we not lose sight of uh, Ukraine and the refugees when the conflicts, burning conflicts, hopefully end. So right now, as we speak, it's been six days since the war started. I saw that. The Battle of Mosul in Iraq in 2016 is the most recent major urban battle. And of course, today the column of Russian armor is on the outskirts of Kyiv. In Mosul, the United States was attacking a city held by ISIS, and that battle lasted nine months. I don't think this war is going to be over quickly. I don't think this war is going to be over quickly, but it is important to remember Iraq and that battle. And important because while we condemn Russian violation of international law, witness witness Iraq, but also witness, and there's been some coverage about it, including at thenation.com, we need to look at all battles, John. And I think there's a bit of a sense that there, Yemen and other wars are going on and that we're focused, as we should right now, so heavily on Ukraine. But let's not forget how dangerous and what the debacle of Iraq was for the world. Katrina Vanden Heuvel. You can read her at thenation.com. Thank you, Katrina. This is great. Thank you. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The Canadian truckers' protest has ended. Was that really a working-class uprising? For comment on the political implications for progressives, we turn to Jeet here. Of course, he's a columnist for The Nation. We reached him today in Regina, Saskatchewan, the birthplace of Canadian socialism. Jeet, welcome back. Good to be here. Well, first, let's talk about how big this was. Hundreds of trucks occupied the streets around Parliament, and the protests shut down key parts of the capital city, Ottawa, for more than three weeks. 
Then the truckers blocked the international bridge from Detroit to Windsor, Canada for almost a week. It's the busiest border crossing between the United States and Canada. They say more than 25% of all the trade between the United States and Canada crosses that bridge. So is it fair to say this was really big? It was very big in terms of its impact, not so big in terms of its size. I mean, I think one of the advantages of driving a truck is that you can like loom much larger than you do. Now, <laughs> like at the border at uh, Windsor, Detroit, you know, there's a point at which it was like just like a handful of rigs. And in Ottawa, okay, there was like, you know, a, a couple of hundred trucks. And then some people, uh, locals joined in. So I think the best estimate is that at the maximum point, there's around 8,000 people. Now, to give a point of comparison, uh, in 2019, there was a um, nationwide climate uh, protest, which garnered over a million people and including like uh, half a million people in Montreal. And uh, earlier in the uh, previous decade, uh, there was a st- continuous student protest in Quebec, which garnered hundreds of thousands. And in 2003, uh, anti-war protests in Quebec, again, nearly half a million people. So like in the, in terms of like a large protest, no. In terms of a protest that actually shut down the capital and the border, yes. And that raised all sorts of questions because I don't think if it was like a climate protest or an indigenous protest or a homeless protest, the cops would have let uh, the city, let alone, you know, the main artery of North American trade be shut down. Well, the place where it was biggest, I think, was on Fox News and right-wing talk radio in the United States, which talked about this. This was their lead story for for a couple of weeks. Uh, One conservative pundit said, uh, this is the biggest labor action I recall seeing in my life, and the left is on the other side of it. It has to do with the shift in the Democratic Party which used to be the party of the working class and now is the party of the pajama class, close quote. And Glenn Greenwald uh, sarcastically tweeted, many people love workers in quotes, but not actual uh, workers. Now, progressives have replied to this, that the truckers were led, organized, and funded by right-wing forces, including white nationalists and Christian fundamentalists, especially from the United States, not Canadian, and that most of them were not actual truck drivers. They were the owners of trucking companies. And progressives, liberals say, they their goals were pretty scary. They were, their manifesto called for overthrowing the government of Canada. Um, are the progressives right about this? Yes. No, the, the, the progressives are very right in terms of the organizing of it. Um, and uh, to be clear, like um, there's been a lot of sort of anti-hate groups uh, and anti-fascist groups that have done a lot of exhaustive research into uh, the people who organized it, who are very familiar faces to people who follow the right in Canada. And we have people who have previously led anti-Indigenous marches, uh, opposition to the carbon tax to deal with climate. And I think very interestingly, uh, some of the key protesters worked as strike breakers and have tried to break strikes. So that should be your first clue as to what is going on. Now, there was a leak from a Christian crowdsourcing that revealed the funding for this. And they did get a broad sort of crowdsourced of like many thousands of people in both Canada and the United States. There are more people in the United States and Canada, like about more than uh, nearly half of the people donating from the United States, uh, maybe 40% from Canada and the rest from around the world. Canadians donated more 
money individually. So some of the donors include like, you know, California billionaire, but they also, yeah, if you look at the people who donated, the Washington Post did a very good report. You know, they come in the United States, come from predominantly well-to-do sub- suburbs that lean Republican. And this makes sense if one understands the crowdsourcing, crowdfunding came from groups that were tied to the evangelical church and to conservative Christianity. So I think the way to perhaps understand this is that what this was is a far-right activist who were very well networked on social media and networked within the evangelical Christian churches throughout North America uh, were able to do this with, you know, financing from the old uh, Marxist system you would call the petty bourgeoisie. Yes. Uh, some of the people who are very rich, but many of them are predominantly the uh, owners of family-owned businesses. And including the owners of these trucking firms, they're, guy, they're people who own trucks and then hire uh, drivers to drive them. And there's a big distinction between that and the working class. I mean, these are the people that employ workers and other workers. And I can speak to some autobiographical depth on this because I, I have relatives who are truckers uh, as drivers. And uh, they're South Asian like I am. And 20% of the truck drivers uh, in Canada are South Asian. And many more are from Africa and the Caribbean. It's a very racialized workforce. But if you actually look at the protests, it's like overwhelmingly white. Let me also ask about the the political goals of the protest. The defenders of the protest say they're just against the vaccine mandates. These guys spend 95% of their time alone in their truck. Why should they have to get vaccinated if they don't want to? The progressives say their manifesto called for the overthrow of the government of Canada. Who's right about this? The organizers of the campaign, some of them signed on to this memorandum of understanding. And what the memorandum of understanding called for was the dissolution of the current government, uh, Justin Trudeau's government, uh, which was recently reelected, dissolving that government, formation of a new government, a junta, if you will, consisting of the leaders of the convoy, The members of the Canadian Senate, which is an unelected body, largely ceremonial or advisory, and the governor general, who's a ceremonial position appointed by the Queen of England. It's a very reactionary sort of formation, to say the least. So, yeah, now they have since scrubbed that memorandum from the Internet. It's been screen saved. But that, that, that is who was organizing it. Having said that, I mean, as the protests went along, I think they were very cagey. Um, initially, in the first days, they had you know, a lot of swastikas and Confederate flags, which again, you know, this is Canada. Uh, <laughs> you, not, uh, you do see them, but I mean, it, it speaks to a particular type of politics. They, they scrubbed all that stuff out, adopted a broader language of freedom, saying we're for freedom. And I think that maybe explains uh, the fact that the uh, broader swath of the population was willing to help pollsters. Well, we support the uh, freedom convoy. So the leadership and the funding came from the far right, but nevertheless, nevertheless, what? Yeah, nevertheless, I mean, I think, and you, you know, you and I have both been involved in protests. And so we, we kind of like, and I think many of our listeners will have as well. And there's always a kind of distinction between the sort of, you know, advanced guard and leadership and the people who come to protests out of, you know, broader range of concerns. I remember um, our old colleague, at the nation, Christopher Hitchens tried to discredit the anti-war protest of 2003 by saying was well, led by Answer, you know, which is like a, a, a Leninist group of uh, who love North Korea. Now, 
very few of the people <laughs> out of those protests were concerned about North Korea one way or the other. And I think that in this case, something very similar, that the um, the, the protests happened, there's in the news, It's uh, and uh, uh, there's a, a broader swath of the Canadian population that's unhappy with the pandemic, unhappy with the government response, and unhappy maybe with the general direction of the country. So you're seeing polls where like a third of the country is saying that they support the freedom convoy. But I don't think that means that they have a third support a junta uh, to overthrow the government. A third of the country in opinion polls said they supported the truckers' protests. And who were these people? The pollster Frank Graves, uh, who works with the Liberal Party, has done some pretty good polling. So initially, it was very sort of class-oriented. It tended to be a broad swath of the um, non-college educated people, uh, lower income people with a lot of, to use of charge term, economic anxiety, people who felt very stressed out, which crossed racial lines. And I think that was very interesting that in the early days of the support, people of color uh, were more likely than uh, white Canadians to support the Freedom Convoy I think that's changed in the last few days as you know, more news has come out. According to uh, Frank Graves, the more recent polling shows that it's the support for the Freedom Convoy is looking more like the conventional conservative voters, sort of older white male voters. But but certainly there was like um, the initial surge of support speaks to a, a broader working class discontent in Canada. And let's also talk about the government actions to stop the protests and the the civil liberties issue here. This was the biggest police action in the history of Canada. Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act. I had never even heard of this before. It was passed in 1988. It requires an urgent and critical situation that seriously endangers the lives, health, or safety of Canadians, and lawful protests do not qualify. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association warned that invoking the Emergencies Act, quote, threatens our democracy and our civil liberties, close quote. And the premiers of Quebec, Manitoba, Alberta, and Saskatchewan said the emergency powers were not needed in their regions. And most dramatically, uh, Trudeau froze the bank accounts of the protesters if If Trump froze the bank accounts of Black Lives Matter people who were protesting outside the White House, we'd be outraged, of course. So so what about Trudeau invoking the Emergencies Act and freezing the bank accounts of the protesters? Yeah, no, it's a very radical move, and uh, I've been critical of it. But although I I think it's important to understand that I think it really came out through the initial police inaction, that the police in Ottawa allowed the uh, convoy to take over and the police in Windsor were not doing anything for a while. And there's a you know fair bit of evidence. And a lot of people on the left have noticed this, observed police complicity or, uh, I mean, I saw this video of like a cop who like, uh, he was scuffed by one of the vehicles and he, he just politely told the driver, you know, don't hit me again. Right? I don't think <laughs> oh, one could easily imagine, your listeners could easily imagine a cop in the United States saying that. So I think the police in action really forced Trudeau's hand. I don't know if the Emergency Act is very troubling. In Canada, we do have a history of this. Justin Trudeau's father in 1970 invoked the War Measures Act against the, um, after some terrorist acts by the uh, Quebecois nationalist. And that was a real suspension of civil liberties with hundreds of people jailed indefinitely. And it was a major trauma in the country that led to, you know, the rising strength of Quebec nationalism for many decades to come. And I think that's one big reason to uh, be concerned. Now, this is a more stripped down law. 
And I think part of the thinking behind it is that we are talking about very networked people. The convoy was able to go on so long, not just because these people have some money of their own, but that they were getting funding from all these outside sources. And so they wanted to put a stop to that. I just think that the existing law could have done it but didn't because of police complicity. And I think that if we're going to have a, a reckoning, that is where it has to start. Why did the cops in uh, Ottawa let it get to the stage? Why are the cops in Windsor? Um, I, I should mention out of interest of fairness, not all police were the same everywhere. In Vancouver and Ontario, the police were much more proactive and able to stop convoys from paralyzing the cities. I think it was a very unnecessary move, excessive, uh, and raises um, uh, civil liberties issues, uh, absolutely. And, and speaks to, I think, the broader failure of what's happened. I mean, I think this is a major stain on Canada. So the bottom line is that the truckers' protest was not a working-class movement, but it was able to harvest and exploit working-class anger, and will probably, which will probably continue unless the plight of poorer Canadians improves. So this so-called freedom convoy should be a wake-up call, not just for Canada, but for all of us. What do we need to do in response to this? What should the Canadian government do? Well, first of all, I think that there has to be like much more proactive measures dealing with the this stage of the pandemic. I feel like as in uh, maybe the United States and many other places, um, I think that uh, as the pandemic wore on, the early surge of government support has waned. And a lot of people feel like that the responsibility for the pandemic has been shifted to individuals. That, you know, like it's individual responsibility to get vaccinated and then to, you know, uh, carry the passport. And there's not a lot of government support. And I think that people still need a lot of support. And there could be like other stuff done in terms of paid vacation time, just to make it easier. So um, addressing those kind of economic issues is key. I think in terms of like thinking about the cracker convoy in the far right, um, I think there's a lot of things that like people or, ordinary uh, organizers could do, anti-fascist networks. I think in Ottawa, it's very interesting. Before the Emergency Act, like when the police were so inactive, there were counter-protests starting and they were very effective in stopping more trucks from coming down into the downtown and in terms of like beating back on the Freedom Convoy. Uh, and in some degrees, a part of me has to think that the rise of counter-protests led to the Emergency Act, that the government did not want a situation where it was a freedom convoy versus like anti-fascist activists on the streets of the capital. Uh, but I actually think that like the the, the counter-protests were the most heartening thing about all this. Tucker Carlson is basically echoing Che Guevara and saying one, two, many convoys. Uh, <laughs> and I think that, you know, there's talk of convoys in Australia and New Zealand. There's a convoy going, heading towards DC now. I think that, you know, one would hope that police would be proactive and take the measures that they need to stop um, shutdowns. But I think that ordinary citizens, you know, who oppose this agenda have to also uh, organize. And I think that they can actually be very effective in uh, shutting this down. Jeet here wrote about the Canadian truckers protest for the nation. You can read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Jeet. This is great. Thank you. it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. 
Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Ah!